you can read the, the regulation and, and you can make some kind of sense of it, even if you're not an expert in the field. But probably the difficult element of this is that a lot of the GDPR is, is structured around the accountability principle. Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. We bring to you the voices shaping the data economy and challenging it at the same time. We talk about breaking down data silos and equalizing access to data for all. Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode powered by Ocean Protocol. Uh, today, we have a very special guest with us, Silwan. He's the founder and managing partner of Tech GDPR and also the founder and president of Burchain. It is a blockchain community based in Berlin. Uh, hello, Silwan. How are you doing today? Hi, Dixia. Very well. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you for taking out the time. So it's ironical, you know, that we are based in Europe and we have a podcast on data economy. And almost in every episode, we talk about GDPR and data regulations. And this is the first time we are having an episode focused on GDPR. So I'm super excited for this. Before I, we dive deep into GDPR, uh, I want to really focus on the fact that we had the second birthday of GDPR this month or last month? It was last month, right? Last month, indeed. It was the 25th of May. In, on the 25th of May, 2018, GDPR officially was signed into, into regulation. Yeah. Okay, so two years. And um, let's start with the positives uh, for this particular <laughs> chat. So what do you think has worked um, in a positive sense? And then we can zoom into the challenges. If you could give, give our audience a little bit of context on, mm -hmm. on the two years of GDPR. I think probably the most important thing about, about the GDPR is that it has created a lot of awareness, um, especially around the introduction. Um, not, not only many companies that had to comply to the law got, got interested in, in, in privacy and data protection and how to deal with data under the GDPR, but also for, for consumers or, or end users, there was a lot of attention in the media. So, so people got more interested in, in privacy and, and how their data is being handled. And by understanding that they have, that they have uh, at, at that moment obtained certain additional rights um, and, that, and that companies are subject to heavy fines if they don't handle their data correctly, um, they, 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 there, there was, there was an in increased interest in, in, in privacy and also controlling the companies uh, or, or checking on the companies if uh, personal data is being handled correctly. So I think that is probably the, the, biggest, um, the biggest upside or the biggest positive side that I see about GDPR. Um, of course, also many companies have started efforts to, uh, to increase their compliance, to do a better job on, on, on data protection and privacy. Um, and that's, of course, good for, for everyone and for everyone's, everyone's privacy. But the awareness element is, is very crucial uh, in my mind. So apart from the awareness and apart from being more conscious, how do you think it has had like a business impact on companies? Because I used to work, I mean, very briefly, I, had, uh, I was working for a company in the ad tech world and uh, they really thrive on attribution data and, you know, these kind of aspects, the ad tech world. But uh, in terms of business impact and losing business per se, if, uh, if I could use that word, how has it impacted companies? Well, 
I think at, in, in the beginning, many have seen it as a big problem, and especially in the ad tech, in the ad tech world, um, many have been, uh, I mean, speaking out against the GDPR, it has been too restrictive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and of course, there were costs involved uh, with, uh, with the compliance. It was like internal resource or engaging a consultancy like, like, like us to, to help with that, or even change some technical or, or business processes. Of course, those are all um, cost-intensive elements that uh, that the companies had to deal with. So I think I think that was uh, that was the first the first response to it. Um, I, meanwhile, that has I think in particular this year, and there's been some interesting research about it as well. Especially this year, many companies are more willing to invest into into privacy and data protection. But that's only two years after the GDPR, right? That's uh, in the beginning. There was there was actually a lot of resistance and not a whole lot of willingness to uh, to invest in that. Now, the other thing is like like data protection rules in general or regulations haven't been new. What is new uh, or what was new in two thousand eighteen is that there was uh, a, a Europe wide regulation introduced. But before there was already a European directive uh, that is actually something that the different member states in Europe have to implement as well, but the regulation would then make it immediately effective. So the practical changes haven't been so substantial. I mean, a bit higher fees, a bit more clarification, a little bit more awareness, but um, still there was a lot of of resistance in terms of investing in, in the compliance of this specifically. So, I mean, interesting you spoke about fines and um, could you give some numbers in terms of what are the kind of fines that have been actually imposed post GDPR and what are the open cases and what really came out as a replication of uh, once GDPR and of course other laws in, in different parts of the world that were introduced? But Right. So... In terms of, of enforcement so far, from, from my perspective, everything has been going a little bit, uh, a little bit slow. Uh, the regulators were, were just like everyone else, still getting to grips with um, how, to, how to enforce this, what's exactly the interpretation that we should follow, etc., etc. And um, one, one, of, one of the key, uh, key finds that I think has just been confirmed in higher court last week, if I'm not mistaken, is the 50 million euro fine to Google for not collecting consent in the right way. Um, they, they fought that in court and then only, only last week it was confirmed that indeed um, they, they have to pay this, this, uh, this fine. This is probably the most, uh, the most important uh, fine in that field, even though 50 million euro for Google is not a whole lot of money. Um, other cases, um, and, and, and of course there are big cases, but also small cases that are very interesting. Um, for example, there's been a small e-commerce um, company in in, uh, in Western Germany, and they've been working with a, a Spanish provider. Uh, I, I believe that was a shipping provider or a software provider, and they have contacted the data protection authorities asking asking about okay, we we can't get a data processing agreement, so the agreement that you need with another company in order to involve them in the processing of your personal data, we can't get this in place. What do we need to do? And as a response, they got a fine for that. Uh, so okay, so you are using a provider where you're not um, where you're, where you don't have a, a valid contract with. So here's a fine. Um, so that was a little bit of the of the um, 
unexpected response. Instead, instead of being helpful, it was more like a, like a, like a finding response. But these authorities and uh, for for your understanding, also the the authorities are are on a uh, normally on a national base. So every country has their national regulator uh, for data protection, and in Germany, it's also on a federal level. So so there's still not a whole lot of harmonization. Of course, there's dialogue going on between all of them, but uh, there's there's still some some differences uh, in in how they actually deal with with these things. But this this last case that I mentioned that kind of set the standard um, amongst regulators that, okay, if you process data um, or if you let someone process your data without having a valid contract in place, um, that the ballpark figure for a fine for that is, is 5,000 euros per missing contract. Okay. So you mean to say that people are not, they still don't know after two years that what are they actually supposed to do to be GDPR uh, compliant, if I may use the word? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's that's um, that's 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 a good ob observation. I mean, um, you can you can read the the regulation and and you can make some kind of sense of it, even if you're not an expert in the field. But probably the difficult element of this is that a lot of the GDPR is is structured around the accountability principle. Um, anyone who processes data needs to consider what data they process, for what purpose, what kind of impact that has to a privacy subject, if that data may leak out, and so forth and so on. And based on that, take appropriate measures. Now, I think that is one of the biggest question marks within the GDPR. What are these appropriate measures? So, of course, these are different if you if you're just keep a mailing list or, or, or something in that direction. Or if you're processing highly sensitive medical data and any company dealing with these things need to take these appropriate measures and, and consider, okay, what, what do we need to put in place? And that's technical measures. That could be encryption, two-factor authentication, or that could also go into the direction of uh, organizational measures, making sure that, that only the right people that need access to that data have access to that data, um, locking your offices and locking your doors, making sure that your servers are physically um, locked away, etc. So, it's a it's a whole broad package of of, of measures that you need to take uh, based on the data that you process. So, if you, if I had to ask you that, what is the most common misconception or thing that companies miss in GDPR? I mean, and and you know they come up with, oh, I didn't know I have to do this to be uh, to be protected, like to to be GDPR compliant. So, so what is the main like the strongest misconception could you pinpoint something like that yeah i think i think there are there are a few things so the first one that i've seen a lot is that everyone was around uh oh we need to collect consent for everything right so everything was around consent you need your che your checkbox on your form and and we need to have consent for everything because that's what the gdpr requires which is wrong so there are there are multiple legal bases for example Performance of a contract um, could just as well be a legal base under the GDPR. So, mm -hmm. so data may be processed if you do this for the performance of a contract. Um, and and that, is, that is one thing uh, that was more like in the beginning. What I see more uh, right now is that, there, that there's, um, especially within, within matrix organizations where, where the legal entities and the responsibilities may be very mixed, um, that we uh, that that the assumption is there. Oh, but we all the same organization, so we can all access this data. Not taking into account that you may have one legal entity in Germany, one in Canada, and one in uh, Nigeria, for example. 
where where data is being exchanged and and this all needs to be um, substantiated in in appropriate contracts etc um, this is often something that's that's being overseen um, let me briefly mention a third one and that is basically the roles of controllers and processes under the gdpr so the gdpr specifies that uh, one party is clearly um, or has to be clearly in charge of the data that's the data controller and processes would only process data on behalf of, of those of those controllers. Now, defining, especially in a multi-company setup or in a situation where one company may offer an SDK to another company um, or, or does some processing on, on their behalf is very complicated. And especially if we if we look at certain technologies like, like uh, blockchain uh, distributed technologies, that's where this gets especially complicated and where there are a lot of misconceptions and wrong assumptions about this. Hmm. I, you know, I always wonder that if GDPR, at least to a person like me, though I've been writing on data for such a long time, is, is still, you know, I discover so many new things. Uh, big companies can still afford help to have, you know, GDPR, you know, laws, etc. What about small entrepreneurs or, you know, startups or people who are just starting out and they're forming a company and you're in Germany where, uh, you know, you really have to avoid, abide by law. It's, we, know, we all know it's stricter than almost every other, every other country that you do, where you do business as startups. What are, what are your tips for people who are starting out? Is it expensive to actually go out and have special um, guidance on how to go right about things or do, can they do it by themselves? Or if you could give some advice to, to young companies, to startups. I think, I think the good news is that, um, that where, where larger companies that have been processing data for years um, had a lot of work um, fitting this into the requirements of the GDPR. Whereas if you're a new company, your, your processes are normally very overseeable. You have, you have only a small set of, of, of data. You may start with collecting some customer data, some things left and right, without having the, the, the data sets that, that large companies that exist for a long time um, may have. So from that perspective, if you have less, less processes to look at data processing activities, then, uh, then it's, it, it, it will get a lot more, uh, a lot simpler. The other thing is, of course, that if uh, even if uh, as, a, as a new startup, uh, you deal with very sensitive data, think about medical data again, or, or anything related to, uh, I don't know, DNA, um, I think we, we, we should keep that bar high. And that bar is high, right, on, on complying to these kind of things. We don't want a, um, even though I'm all for innovation, we, we do want to be very careful with uh, how this data is being handled. So the requirements even for small companies that deal with these sensitive kinds of data they 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 are they are high and and that is that is going to be a little bit of a gdpr hurdle um there are of course certain things that uh, that you can do internally and and for for companies that have uh, or for startups that have time available and that are willing to dive into it we see many, many of them doing doing the uh, 70 80 90 percent of the work themselves perhaps under a little bit of guidance that's normally how we work with them um, we provide some tools uh, we uh, for for example we came up with a uh, a, a gdpr canvas um, pretty much an, uh, uh, as an analogy to the business model canvas where in in a few simple steps you can already gain a lot of insight in your 
your data. And that is probably also the first step that I would recommend anyone. Like, like make sure that you understand what data is being processed, where you get it from, where it goes through, um, what security mechanisms are in place. And then what the GDPR additionally requires is that you, for example, um, define the purpose of that specific data collection. Uh, you define a retention period and you define a legal base. And now for that, you need a little bit of insight in the GDPR. But if you, if you already have a full inventory of your data, that makes it a lot easier. Okay. You know, I, in the very first episode of this podcast, we interviewed Andrew Trask and we focused on privacy preserving AI. And we also spoke a lot about anonymized data. And it again comes up in, in every, almost every chat we have with people from the world of data economy. And I would love to know your views on, first of all, telling people what is anonymized data and how is it different from personal data? That is one part. And the second part is that researchers have now and again spoken about the fact that you are able to re-identify most of the individuals uh, through the data sets that are collected through the so-called anonymized data. And it's not per se protected by GDPR. Okay, <laughs> this turned out to be a very long question. But yeah, two parts to it. So what is anonymized data as compared to personal data? And secondly, are we protected under GDPR when we say we are using anonymized data sets? Very good question. Um, to start with the first part, so, so personal data under the GDPR is defined as basically any data that, uh, that is about an um, identified or identifiable person. Um, so that's, that could be very broad. To give you an example, if we talk about um, a zip code and a last name, um, that's, that, that, the, the question if that's personal data depends. If we're looking at a common German last name with a Berlin zip code, I'm pretty sure that is not personal data because there will be 40 or 50 people popping up with the same last name in the same zip code area. If you would take my last name, which is pretty unique in Germany, um, and we would, uh, we would assume that I would have a residential address somewhere in a, in a small uh, village that would very likely be personal data because that would lead back, uh, right, right back to me, right? So that is also how you, how you can, can do a little test about personal data. With the, the details at hand, can you actually point out one single person? If yes, personal data. Um, if you can point out a few people, probably also personal data because it's very likely that you can, can link it back. Um, then the GDPR uh, defines pseudonymized data and anonymized data. Uh, pseudonymized data is data that is not directly relatable to a person. So that could be, for example, uh, data about uh, web surfing behavior. Um, but we need additional information or an additional database table to, to link that back to a, to, a, to a person. For example, linking an IP address to a, to a, to a name um, of someone that filled out a form on the website or, or something in that direction. That would be uh, pseudonymized data. So that's not anonymous, but pseudonymous. And pseudonymization is not a way to move it out of scope of the GDPR, but rather a way to, like, like a, uh, a technical protection measurement for that data. Then anonymous data. Very interesting. Um, the, the GDPR or the, the basically the Working Party 29 
that was the previous European-wide um, working party on, on data protection before the GDPR was instigated. Um, they, they offered guidance in 2014. Um, that is a, I believe, 32-page document on exactly when something is anonymized. I can tell you anonymization is hard, right? You need to consider so many different things. And, and indeed, what you say, you need to consider, can data be re-identified? And that is the big danger here. Um, I, I think with evolving technology, evolving availability of, of, of data of all kinds, um, especially if we consider AI and, and what kind of sense uh, a, a good AI system could make of different data sets and relationships that uh, perhaps humans could make already, but that AI could make at much greater pace and, and accuracy. Um, the, the, the barrier for that only is, is, is only greater, right, to, uh, to call something anonymous because the methods are evolving. And, there, and therefore, um, it, is, it is more and more likely that data could be re-identified. The good thing is, under the GDPR, from the pure legal perspective, re-identification is, uh, is something that is, that is very much findable. So that's, that's something that is very undesirable behavior. If something has been anonymized, uh, data should not be re-identified. Um, but of course, it, by, like, while testing, if we, do, if we really anonymize data, by which we also move the data out of scope of the GDPR. So anonymized data can be freely traded, sent everywhere without having any, any GDPR protection in place. But we can only consider it anonymized data if this re-identification is very, very difficult or impossible. So in these times of pandemic, you know, we all are talking about data like we have never spoken before. And uh, two days before, I think two days ago, we had an app for contact tracing in Germany as well, which says that no data will be stored centrally. User information will not be exchanged. It is going to use anonymized data and temporary IDs. Um, and that will also be removed within 14 days from, from storage. So, and, and still a lot of people are apprehensive to using contact tracing, you know, when I meet, meet friends every day or colleagues. So what do you have to say for people who are apprehensive in using such apps and are contract, contact tracing apps actually the solution to the situation we all are in today? <laughs> Yeah, well, well, first, I think um, I should emphasize that I'm not, not an expert whatsoever on, on the pandemic. And, and I have looked only on the service into these, uh, into these apps that are out there. I think the first thing that I want to highlight there is that I'm positively surprised by, by a, a, a relatively um, technically good approach um, of, of, of the contact tracing app in, in Germany, for example, where the temporary IDs as well as um, uh, decentralized elements are are included that all that all contribute to privacy. The other thing that I'm that I'm a little bit a um, little bit more concerned about is still contact tracing. And from from my perspective, especially working in the field of, of privacy, um, I'm not convinced that contact tracing is is going to uh, offer a solution to this um, to this to this pandemic or to the to the current situation at hand. Um, looking more at the, um, at, at the at the technical and perhaps also the behavioral side, what I find interesting is where we um, where where we 
we're more around giving away our our privacy for convenience by installing another app that may actually be um, uh, providing a certain service, but in exchange for some data, perhaps location data or perhaps other kinds of data. Um, right now, we're actually giving away quite a bit of our our privacy and and thereby freedom um, for for public health, right? And and even though this is like the argument of privacy is very easily denied by many by many um, people surrounding me, but also in the media. I think this is still something that we need to be aware of. We we do we do give in on some of our our freedoms and 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 privacy that we need to be very. Um, careful of and and which is uh, which is certainly a um, something that we that we should that we should you know be very conscious about what we what we give it up for and and if that's a sensible approach um, yeah so in in terms of in terms of the um, um, the, the the contact tracing app I'm not a fan I'm a bit apprehensive about it. Um, but I, I understand also that uh, that the people in charge have taken uh, fairly good uh, fairly good design decisions so far. Um, one one last danger perhaps that I see is that it's all been developed in a very short period of time. Normally, anything that's been done by the government will will, will take uh, um, a year or two for these kind of things to uh, to roll out. So I'm I'm also a little bit concerned about if this wasn't uh, wasn't introduced too quickly um and and there may still be some some flaws here and there that uh, that we may have overseen or perhaps we didn't have even have enough debate about if this is necessary or even helpful right so um that's that's the other privacy minded side, uh, side of uh, things that i see yeah, I guess time will tell <laughs> mm. you know, to all of us, yep. you know, what this means because we all are experimenting with different things. And back home in India, um, we also have an app that, and we are 1.3 billion people, and mm -hmm. everybody is very apprehensive of using that app. Um, so yeah, I'm as curious as anybody to know what what goes. And you still have, I think, in the in Europe, um, there are still people who are really concerned about how their data is used, but not sure if, if that's the case in, in the, you know, developing nations. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, I mean, if we, if we look at Germany again, specifically then, um, and, and I was in a, uh, in a, in a panel discussion yesterday with, uh, one of the people that contributed to this app. Um, what I found very interesting is that even though Germany in general is a region where where privacy is very much valued, some of the earliest privacy laws came from Germany. There are good historical reasons for privacy here. Um, but the uptake of this app um, has been relatively high, right? So in, in Germany, I believe there were in the, in the first 24 hours, 5 million downloads, while in France, there were only 1 million. Um, so those... I found interesting findings to uh, to see, like okay, so apparently privacy is not that important anymore, or or people have a lot of faith in the in the working of this app, or I'm I'm not sure what it is, but are we scared? It's a, it, it, yeah, or we're scared, of course, but it's a it's a little bit out of line for Germany, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, interesting, actually. Super. Uh, I shouldn't say exciting times. Uh, I was going to say that. <laughs> Interesting for sure. Yeah, interesting times. Um, okay, I'm going to switch back to GDPR now. And mm -hmm. 
I, I don't look I keep going back to this first podcast we had and where we discussed about data monetization and um, the, the very premise that companies of big tech or tech giants really started accumulating data and data hoarding was because they wanted to monetize data and GDPR to some extent there is debate that it has crashed the plans that you can actually monetize data so if you could give some clarity on how has data regulation actually affected data monetization i mean basically mm-hmm. being able to earn profits by collecting data right well perhaps first about data hoarding in in general right and that was a practice that's been that's been going on for a long time companies had the uh, um, had the strategy of just collecting as much data as, as possible um, uh, f- and, and, and with the idea of figuring out later what exactly they would do with it. Um, of course, that would bring a lot of insight. And of course, if you, if you, if you look at how technology evolves, especially artificial intelligence, um, there's, there's something to say for that from, from that business perspective. We don't know yet how certain data will be useful in the future. Um, and I think for, for the GDPR or, or the GDPR has, has, has um, stopped that quite a bit. Uh, so all the data that you, you need to be very transparent and open about all the data that you collect as a company. And you need to define what the purpose of that data collection is. Uh, you need to have a valid legal base. So if, there's, if it's not required, for example, the performance of a contract or if it's not in your direct legitimate interest, uh, you, need to, you need to collect consent. Um, specifically for specific purposes. And if you say, well, we just want to keep this data forever to learn something from somewhere in the far future um, that will not be accepted by many of the users. So this data hoarding principle is, uh, has, has, has become a lot more difficult. And, and I think that's, that's probably for the better uh, because it's a lot of like, personal details or things that may become personal, right? In in terms of monetization, uh, so I think I think this area of of, of monetization is uh, has has become more more difficult for sure, uh, but it's it's still in in some kind of way there are still possibilities to make to make money off data, um, but that normally goes hand in hand with having direct permission from the data subject from the person that you would collect this data off um, to do so. And how, how do you get that? Perhaps by also incentivizing them for, for, for that. Um, but that again, under the GDPR, is, is difficult, if not, if not impossible. So you can't really um, deny access to a, to a service uh, if people just don't want to give their data. Of course, if you need their data to conclude a contract with them, um, in order to give them access to the service because they need to pay for it and you need to, you need to build that. You have, you have a, tra- a, a trail of, of reasons um, that could go into the direction of, okay, yeah, this, this actually justifies this data collection, but not just for exchanging personal data for access to a service or product. Um, and can you monetize on anonymized data? Yeah, if it's if it's properly anonymized, you can you can. It's out of scope of the GDPR, right? So and and that is that is also like anonymization. Um, basically, make sure that it's not covered by the GDPR anymore. So if it's done properly, that's that's okay. Okay, but there are no studies or numbers in terms of the kind of impact it has had on business profits, like all these data regulations. 
nothing to my knowledge directly. No, I, I, I mean, there may, there may have been studies, but I, I wouldn't know about them. Um, okay. but I, but I, but I, but I think, um, you know, companies are, or, or especially innovative startups are creative, right? They look at new, new ways of, uh, um, of, 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 of dealing with this. And if they can't just directly monetize the data, they may be, they may be finding, uh, finding new solutions to that. And, and I think following the GDPR, we've also seen quite a bit of innovation um, to, to deal with such challenges, which is, uh, which is a good thing. Finding more privacy-friendly ways to, uh, to, to do the same things. Yeah. Okay, on that note, um, I also have a question from one of our Ocean community members, and he tweeted it yesterday when I was asking for questions. So, Robin, here goes your question uh, for mm -hmm. Sylvan. So he wants to know that which data has to be removed from a video to make it GDPR compliant. Basically, he says that is it enough to remove faces with a detection algorithm, or or what does he have to do with with mm -hmm. with that? Sure, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, it, uh, I, th I think I think it's a right observation that in in a video, typically uh, faces or license plates or or, or such things are. Uh, are, are the most uh, personally identifiable elements in there. But the GDPR also specifies that, um, that, that basically any biometrical data um, could also be, could also be uh, personal data. For example, walking patterns are very unique to people, so how people move, right? And it's not, it's not unlikely that, uh, that AI, I haven't seen implementations of that yet, but that, that AI or other algorithms could actually match walking patterns between uh, people in, in different videos, right? So that's, that could lead to de-identification. Uh, tattoos, for example, is something that you also need to keep in mind or any like, like, like specific uh, marks, right? Um, these could also be very unique and, and very identifying. So in, in, in general, thinking about uh, removing faces and, and these additional marks, uh, license plates or, or add other, other registrations that may be visible in a video is the right approach. Um, you could, for example, uh, like, like there's, there's AI out there that, that could do that automatically. You should, of course, consider that processing this and this process of anonymizing the data is still data processing that needs to be justified under the GDP under the GDPR. Um, but otherwise, once that is done, uh, I think you could claim that is anonymous data and you could do with that what you want. But, you know, make sure that you, that you consider all elements, not just uh, faces or license plates, but also think about what else could, could be uh, leading us back to one specific person. Hmm. Okay, I didn't know this. I learned something new and I hope Robin also got the answer to his question. Um, you know, uh, so Sylvan, I mean, just wrapping things up, but also asking, like, in retrospective, when GDPR was actually, you say, framed, um, there was, I, I think I meant, I maybe heard you saying somewhere that it did not take into account the technologies that exist today. 
Um, so I want to explore further into this statement and actually want to know that how does it work really? Are they actually upgrading the GDPR regulations every year or is it a process that is going, I mean, things are going to be added and how does, how will it actually ensure that it keeps pace with the technological innovation that's happening on side by side? That's a great question. Um, so the first notion, I think, is that the GDPR was, the, the drafting process started seven years before it was introduced, right? So, so at that point in time, uh, cloud computing was, was, uh, was something new. Um, but the mindset of, of most people at the time was in a client-server kind of architecture. You, you have your client on your computer, you connect to a server, and that, those kind of relationships are most importantly um, foreseen to be covered under the GDPR. Now, if we look at, um, and, and, and we, work, we work quite a bit with decentralization and, and blockchain, and there's basically this uh, decentralization of responsibilities as well. Um, the information is being stored on, on different nodes throughout the network. Uh, every node has similar permissions to add information to the blockchain. Uh, this is absolutely something that the GDPR has not foreseen or thought about. Uh, can we blame them? I, 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 I don't think so. Should we, should we think about better solutions for that? I, I think we should. Um, but to give you a little bit of insight in the review process or the process of, of making these technologies um, more compatible or, or perhaps the other way around, making the law more compatible about, around these technologies. Uh, so in terms of reviewing the GDPR, there's a biannual review process foreseen in the GDPR. And, and that, is, uh, that is therefore because it was introduced two years ago. That should happen this year. I'm not exactly aware of the, of the status of that, but that's, that, is, that is about to happen. The, the more accessible way of, of uh, understanding the implementation or basically how the law should be interpreted is through the guidance that is issued by the different local regulators, but also by the EDPB, the, the, the European Data Protection Board. Uh, that is the uh, that's the body in uh, in Brussels that is overseeing the GDPR. Um, so there are certain uh, there are certain guidance. For example, last year, and if I talk about blockchain specifically, hashing is one of the very interesting and important central components of of blockchain. Um, there was guidance issued on hashing last year in uh, I, I believe in November by the EDPS and the Spanish Data Protection Authority. So there's something out there. Um, there was some early guidance on blockchain by the French authority, the CNIL as well, that gives us a little bit of an idea how to think about that. Um, and the EDPB itself is also, at least at the beginning of the year, they announced that, that they have on the agenda for this year in, in summer to also issue specific guidance on, on blockchain. And this is what the uh, what, 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 what we as, as, as privacy professionals are, are looking at mostly to to get a better understanding of, uh, of, how, of how the regulation should be interpreted. Um, besides that, we can, of course, also look at court cases. What, what, have, like what were the rulings, um, what decisions were made, and, and look at how we can follow that. But uh, yeah, review, review should be due this year. Um, but I, I, I do not foresee that there will be very fundamental changes in terms of the GDPR roles, for example. Um, 
just because there are some technical systems out there that that may not fit into that uh, into those boxes specifically. Last um, last element there perhaps is that even though the GDPR uh, is is not is not exhaustive, is not is not like completely giving guidance on every single situation. Uh, it does that on purpose, so it is intentionally vague, perhaps, right, and and leaving a lot up to the uh, to the accountability of the person or of the organization processing that data. Um, so anyone who does that needs to needs to make their own or or have their own explanation of how what their product or service does complies to the requirements of the GDPR. Okay. So, I mean, still there are a lot of things that we'll be hearing from, from this law. Can we call it a law? No. Regulation. Yes. Regulation, I would say. So it's a, it's, it's a basically a, the European regulation, which is which will yes. automatically become law okay. in the different member states. So um, I mean, I would love if you leave like a one-line uh, mission statement or something that you would want people to take away from um, <laughs> our talk today, or generally the work that you are doing. Um, one one message that you want to convey. Hmm. Yeah, sure. I think I think the key thing is that that um, even though it's it looks challenging to comply to this to this regulation, it is in it is in um, most situations possible to find an interpretation that would that would actually suit what you're what you're doing, what you're working on. Of course, it's it's uh, like the more complex your technology is, um, the more work there may be on this end. But in in general, there are always ways to uh, to deal with this. And I think um, as a last thought, perhaps. While it is a challenge to innovation, uh, a challenge to, to businesses, it is also great that there's actually something in place that, that protects us and, and as an individual. And as an individual, having certain rights that are clearly defined with escalation channels to, res to regulators, etc., is something that gives me a, a bigger sense of, of, of privacy. And I think we should, uh, we should value that. I mean, thank you. And, and that's a great message. You know, I think personally, I got dived into the world of data privacy two years back. And the more I learn, uh, the more I love it. And it's, it's great to see people like you who are doing genuine work in this field. And thank you for taking out time for us today, Salman. Thank you so much, Tiksha. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you.